Tell you what, when we're trying to do this, what I'll do is I'll do the reading anyway, if that's okay. And then we can catch up on ourselves. So the reading is taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning to read from verse 42. And it's from the New International Version. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness and sincerity. Enjoying the people and the Lord their number those saved. So I need to do something. Is it you on? Great. Great. No one. OK. 
Okay, so it, there was nothing for them to measure success by. Do you know the way if you're asked, the worst thing for me was going into school and somebody handed you a blank sheet of paper and said, write an essay on anything. Did you like doing that? I hated it. Because I didn't know what was wanted, I didn't know what was expected, I didn't then know what success was going to be. I didn't know what my target was. These early Christians, the people of the way, had no idea. All they had was the Jewish synagogue, the temple courts, and they continued to meet there. So they needed to be inventive, just like we've been over the last 16 months or so, that were scattered apart. So I want to pick up these six verses, and I want to say something in each of the verses about what I think we might be looking for as we grow our new community. First thing, they devoted themselves continuously, we're told. This wasn't a one-off. It wasn't just a Bible study. Continuously to the apostles' teaching. Now, at the start of the second century, they put together a body of work. The early church fathers put it together. It was called the Didache. It means the teachings. And it was like an early catechism, and they found very early examples of it. So early, they think it may have been compiled now even 85 or 90 AD. And that was about the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. So this was only 60 years after Jesus died. They had a catechism. And this was the beginning of the catechism, but it was oral. So they were listening to this because it hadn't been recorded. And it was those who'd heard Jesus speak, recounting what they'd heard. And they turned up on a regular basis and they devoted themselves to this. That word, continuously devoted, only occurs ten times in the whole of the New Testament, both as a verb and as a noun. And it's interesting. Six of those are connected with the word prayer and two of them with the ministry of the word. Isn't it interesting what they did on a daily basis was devote themselves to getting their theological foundation right and then getting the access from them to God right. So being rooted in the word and then being rooted in prayer and this was a continual event, not something that's one off. They also committed themselves to what the Greek word is koinonia and koinos means common. So whatever it means, it's come to mean fellowship. It didn't really mean that then, because what they felt was we need to be together, just like the branches. Remember, they were developing. They were a sect within Judaism, according to the Romans. They were given a lot of freedom. They weren't being persecuted then. It was about 64 AD. They started to be persecuted. But by this stage, they were put up with. They were tolerated because they thought they were a sect in Judaism. And Judaism gathered in the synagogue. So they gathered. And part of this gathering together covers this word koinonia. And it's the concept of coming together to share what we have. And we're more than the sum total of our parts. So it's not as if we all turned our pockets out, put them in the middle, and that will be what koinonia is. It's much more than that. Because that word is always used of active participation in the New Testament. And the result of koinonia isn't a given. It's dependent on what the people do when they meet together. So it means the act of sharing in. It doesn't mean you turn up on a sofa to watch. It means praxis, that praxis of the apostles. It means you get your hands dirty. It means you actually do something. It doesn't mean the collection of people. The ecclesia, the, the calling together, that's what the church is. Ecclesiastical, we get that word from. And ecclesia means the people called out. So the church itself, the body of believers, they were the called out ones. But what happened when they were together was this koinonia. So this word is about what believers do rather than who they are. And that's the important thing. We talk about sometimes evangelism as stuff we do rather than things that actually happen when we appear, when we come. 
So when we come, when we uh, visit people, we bring light to the situation. We are evangelical by our very nature. Of course there are words, of course there's things we do. But Jesus says, go into the world and preach. He said, go first. The important is presence. And this is what Koinonia was about, coming together. What did they do when they came together? They broke bread. Now, this could mean two things. It could mean an early Eucharist, an early communion. But that's unlikely if it was a daily event in people's houses. It was more likely it was what was called the agape meal. Now, the Greeks had four words for love. And the one that was most used about Christians was agape. Because that's a self-sacrificing, self-giving, reverential love. It's the love that Jesus gave on the cross, the agape love. So they celebrated Jesus' love in what they called agape meals. And they met together and people brought stuff. You know, it's a bit like, you know, going around people's houses and somebody does the dessert and somebody does the stars and so on. And they broke bread physically because that was a sign of being together. And of course, the final thing of this four, almost as if these were the four things, the foundational principles of the early church. And the fourth one was prayer. And the word used for prayer there could be both public or private. So it didn't mean that the only times they prayed was when they met together. And they didn't have daily notes or daily bread. Those things didn't exist. They didn't have the internet to go on. But their devotion was brought out of praxis. What they did was from their experience what they saw. And they brought that into their prayer. The second thing is in verse 43, everyone was filled with phobos, phobia, awe. And they saw many signs and wonders. Peter had said, open your eyes, things are going to happen. Joel, who'd been quoted, said, signs and wonders are going to happen. The signs of the early church were expect signs and wonders. Now, this isn't the same thing as we've argued about over the last 30 years here, you know, about whether or not we're healing people, whether or not miraculous signs are happening. Jesus was attested to people, according to Paul and to Peter, by the miracles that he did. But the miracles weren't enough because the miracles always were signs pointing to something greater. In and of themselves, they were being done by magicians. There was something different about Jesus' miracles because they drew people to God through what he did. Now, these things were commonplace, and yet people lived with them. In other words, they were unexpected, but they became normative. They became things that people expected because that's what God does. And this state of awe, in Greek it means it's an ongoing thing. It wasn't just on a Sunday. Every day in the week they wakened up expecting God to do stuff, to do new stuff, to break boundaries, to do things that they'd never seen before because signs and wonders became normal as part of their experience. Why? Because when God's involved, there is no rules. There are no formulas. There's a blank page. And I guess for us in this new community, do we expect God to intervene? Or is he the last thing that happens? There was a story told in the Titanic as it was going down. A woman went to the captain and said, is there anything I can do? He said, yes, pray. And she said, have things gone that far? Because we often bring prayer in when all else fails. He becomes God of the gaps. When we've stuffed, we've, we've put everything else in there, all the other stuff that we think about, all our technology, our intellect, at the very end, oh, a better pray. Prayer should be the foundational starting point for anything we do. And as we do it, as we practice the things, we should be saturating it with prayer. And at the end, we should be praying. Prayer should be part of the air that we breathe. It's the DNA of the new community. All believers were together and had everything in common. Now, this wasn't uniformity. That would be boring. You know, if we were all the same, we all turned off the production line the same. 
Would that, that would, I wouldn't go to a church like that. A church who had lots of me, I would not go there. Right? Because I love the variety of that. It's also not unanimity because there were all sorts of arguments. Do you remember Paul had one of them and he, he sent a few people back home because they didn't agree with him? I, you know, Paul would have been a very hard person to lead your small study group or preach because it seemed to be it was his way or no way. Thus, I'm saying Paul the Apostle, he was a bit sort of rough around the edges at time. But he needed to be in those early days. So this was not unanimity because people thought different things. Because up to that point, women were in the outer court. Gentiles, well, you couldn't even think of them. People with disabilities, people who had leprosy, they weren't allowed near. And all of a sudden, all those rules go because this man comes into the world as a saviour of the world, saves the world, dies, goes to heaven, sends his spirit, and the rules are all gone. And we're back to that white page again. And we're starting to begin to create stuff. And we know on this stuff that we need to meet together, to pray together, to listen to the, the gospel, to listen to the apostles' teaching, and then we need to meet together in this koinonia. But it doesn't mean we all have to think the same. And this wasn't union, because it wasn't as if there was one church. Paul wrote letters to lots of churches. There was no attempt to bring all the churches together, because that unity and variety was actually part of the spread of the early church. Now, this everything in common wasn't simply that this was an idea that maybe people shared money. It was much more than that. They shared their lives. They shared passion. Like the four guys who dropped the fellow through the roof. Do you remember when Jesus was preaching, they couldn't get in, they dropped him through the roof? I remember doing this one time, and the preacher said, go home and think of the four people you would ask to do that for you. Wow, that, that really stopped me in my tracks. Do I have four people who I know would bring me to the Savior and drop me through the roof, haven't taken the tiles off, not knowing what was going to happen? And that, Jesus, I thought was the unexpected. We should have begun to see the signs even then. Generosity, we're told in verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, Acts 4 later on explains what that means. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, it's important to say this wasn't communism. I have seen books, PhDs, written on the fact this was early communism. It was not. It was early community, and there's a difference. Because the purpose of them selling stuff was to provide for the needs of others. And initially that would have been believers. We remember the, the, you remember that um, there was a, a great famine that happened. Probably came from an earthquake. And they made a collection, the church in Jerusalem, if you remember. That's one of the earliest, if you like, uh, gatherings where we see the need for something beyond your own four walls. But right in the heart of Acts chapter 2, we're told that these people normally gave what they had and they shared out of that for people who had need. Now that seemed to be normal in Jerusalem. There's very little evidence that that traveled the whole way through the Christian world later on. Certainly by the second century, that doesn't seem to have been the model for the early church. So I think we need to be really careful when we look back at Acts 2 to say that's the model. I don't think it's the model any more than the Lord's Prayer is the only prayer we should pray. I think what God did in Jesus in the Lord's Prayer was model how prayer should be. Give us an example of prayer. And I think what we see here is an example of some of the values that should permeate, that should, should infuse our new community today. Generosity. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Remember, they were still seen as a sect in Judaism. So they met in the temple courts 
For all intents and purposes, people may have felt that they were Jews of a particular sect. A bit odd, perhaps, because they let women in. And there were people with disabilities there. The untouchables were there, and they were saying strange things. Nonetheless, they were still Jews, because they met in the courts. Because outward, visible signs of worship was important for the early church. And that's why for a lot of people there's been a huge loss over the last 16 months. But I need to say something that's me saying this today. I have recently seen a number of texts and Facebook posts that are actually saying we need to get together and that's the only way to be church. And if you're not there, you're just a sofa Christian. I, I think that that is trying to frighten people into church I can think of lots of reasons where very good and close friends of mine cannot come to a physical building. But to make it a mark of the church that you need to attend during these days, I think, personally, is a wrong thing to do. Of course, it should be normal when things get normal that we meet together. But there will always be people who are unable to gather because of sickness or inability or they're far too far away. And if we've been taught anything during these 16 months, it's how we can actually do church in a different way. It's how we can be scattered together. It's how we actually concur for those on the margins. Maybe they never get to be with us physically, but that should never be one of the ten marks that's put down against them. Oh, they weren't at church again. And I'm saddened when I see these posts, and they're reposted and liked by a lot of Christian friends of mine. I understand the sentiment entirely. But for me, this is about compassion. It's about gladness and generosity, because these people broke bread in their own homes as well. And when they were breaking bread, they were full of gladness, and they had sincere hearts. I think I shared this once before. Sincere is a Latin word, and it means without wax. And whenever a bust was made of a Caesar, you know, out of marble, and there was a crack in it, rather than destroy it, you would put wax in the crack, and you wouldn't see it until it was put over a big blazing fire. And then you saw it sine keros, without wax. You saw it warts and all. You saw it with all the cracks. That's what sincere means. It means you're not covering up any stuff. The early Christians were meeting together, warts and all, as we would say today. But there was a pattern in it. It was daily. They expressed their joy. It didn't mean they were sad. It didn't mean they suffered grief. Of course they did. But ultimately what they tried to do was support one another. And that flowed outward. It was like a virus. They had a vision for the lost. We're told they praised God, enjoyed the favor of people, and the Lord added to their number. The best evangelist in the world simply sows seed. He or she does not produce the harvest. The harvest production comes through God's Spirit and is gifted by God alone. And sometimes we need to remember that. The only reason people come to faith is because it's a gift of God through Christ. We may have a means. We may be able to bring people to a certain point. But once we start doing the headcount thing, once we start measuring church's success by a number count, we're feeling the marks of the early church, in my view. Because this vision for the lost reminds me that evangelism is actually about my lifestyle. It's not about a set of words. It's not dropping John 3.16 into every conversation. It's stopping if someone is, needs a hand, if they're flat tire and you're on the way to church, what would you do? I remember in Orangefield, a guy who was visiting speaker turned up an hour before church, sat down outside in old clothes in a sleeping bag, and then five minutes before the sermon went in, and he dressed, and he actually said, it's not the first time I've seen most of you. Now, where's this? I've, I saw you outside. And I think there were ten people in the congregation. I 
was a member of Orangefield at the time, so I'm not saying this you know, just because it happened to be them. I think, had it been here, it might have been the same thing. He was just a face. He was anonymous. But as soon as he came into the pulpit, he was somebody different. And people then were struck by their lack of generosity, by watching the clock, by the fact that success was measured by being in the pew rather than sharing your life in lifestyle evangelism. Because evangelism is partnership with God. We don't do it on our own. Evangelism is passion. And also evangelism reminds me that no matter how unable my words are, no matter how inefficient I am to present, God brings the increase. Now, when we're thinking ahead of the messages for the new community, let me just ask the question, how important is discipline to us? How important is us to expect the unexpected? Or if God broke into the daily conversation, would we sort of go, you know, you know, not now? Do you remember they were praying for the release of the prisoners? And there was a knock at the door saying, actually, you don't need to pray anymore. They're released. Will you go away? We're praying for you. Because they didn't expect their prayer to be answered. You know, sometimes we're a bit like that. Billy Graham once stopped a prayer meeting when people were praying for money for Mission England when he said, hold on, don't bother God with things for which you have the answer. Now, okay, that's a bit over the top, and that was Billy Graham. But the bottom line was it was about actually expecting the unexpected. Do we do that? Are we so focused on thinking the same that we really lose the purpose of what true unity is? Do we display generosity? Do we show gladness and sincerity of heart on a regular basis? And how do we sharpen our vision for the lost? So, I think what I want to leave is that we should be looking to a new community which is new in terms of quality, new in terms of freshness, new in terms of our experiences. So, Adrian, I think, had this lovely idea where not to reboot, we're to recalibrate were to set again our compass points. I do not want to go back to the way things were because by doing that, we're actually saying we haven't learned anything from the past 16 months. And we're saying it was like the pause button was pushed and let's resume normal service. This is not a new normal. Don't let anybody tell you that. This is not normal. It is abnormal. And one of the things we can do as a Christian community is to influence what the future will be. We can influence it in a way that the church begins to have a real voice for the marginalized, for the lonely, for the people on the edge, that our passion for evangelism brings people into our koinonia. And this new is about renewing our relationship with Jesus. Paul says every day take off the old man and woman and every day put on the new one. It's in present tense in Greek. You never do it once and for all. It's like every morning I put new clothes on. I don't do it for the week. I would like to sometimes, but I don't. And that's what it means to be renewed, sanctified in the Spirit. And finally, we need to be new through that lovely word metamorphosis. We should be continually being transformed into the butterfly. Let me finish by the words of someone who I love his readings and his writings, and it's John O'Donoghue. He was a, he's dead now. He was a Celtic theologian. This is the challenge. May I live this day compassionate of heart, clear in word, gracious in awareness, courageous in thought, and generous in love. If I could fulfill even one of those, I would be a better person. That's the challenge for all of us. So let's pray together. I'm just going to use the words of this thought as prayer. Father, may we live this day compassionate of heart, clear of word, gracious in awareness, courageous in thought, and generous in love. For Jesus' name. Amen.